I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So I'm condemning the strongest possible terms. Egregious display, hatred, bigotry, and violence. Okay, I think you can't do much better, right? Press coverage is his only prism for viewing his own presidency. If you watch that speech as an American, you had to be thinking, what in the world is going on? There was no sanity there. He was like a child blaming a sibling on something else. He did it. I didn't do it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the good student who was a better student than you, went to a better school than you, and who lives in a bigger, more beautiful apartment, and he lives in the White House too, which is really great. That's right, A-plus Donald Trump, giving another valedictory address, this time in Phoenix, Arizona, last night during which he humbly thanked his betters and told his fellow humans to follow their dreams and pursue lives of service to others. Or not. Or he talked about how CNN won't show his rallies live, how they turn off the live red lights. You know, all you elites out there who listen to Trumpcast, this talk of CNN's live red lights and media arcana speaks to the heart of the common man. This is not all that technocrat palaver about, like, everyone's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is what Americans care about, CNN's live little red light and whether it's on or off. I did notice that our president, that's Donald Trump, he won. The New York Times didn't call it right, but he won. He lives in the White House, and did I say he won? Referred twice to his anxiety about boring his audience. I don't want to bore you, Trump said at least twice last night. Has he ever said this before? I take it as a good sign. Since Trump is such a projector, and let's face it, even if you still like to hate watch a Trump rally, they're getting a little boring. But today we're not bored because we're talking about the intricacies of the alt-right. Now, I like to see the Trumpian right as a monolith. It's like a decluttering thing, where I've just put them all in a trunk so I can better think of how to orient myself to all the knickknacks. But it turns out the alt-right does not think of itself as a monolith. This always used to happen to me when I was talking to someone about Seattle Sub Pop and Nirvana, and then I'd bring up Mud Honey, and they'd be like, Mud Honey and Nirvana are not even in the same universe as musical concepts. It's like all the factions who hate the Romans in Life of Brian, though, right? But we all hate the Romans, don't we? Are you the Judean people's front? Fuck off. What? Judean people's front. Well, the people's front of Judea. Judean people's front. <laughs> Wankers. Here to tell me why even the Romans, those Trumpites, are not a monolith, is Andrew Morantz, a writer at The New Yorker whose work on the alt-right has been some of the best during this summer of our discontent. But first, what are you doing September 23rd? If you're near Austin, Texas, or even if you're not, get on a plane, a train, or your bike, and come see Trumpcast live at the Texas Tribune Festival. Jamel Bowie, Jacob Weisberg, and I will be joined by Jill Abramson, the former executive editor of the New York Times, and the congressman from Texas, Joaquin Castro. We're really looking forward to it, and we'd love to see you. Find out more about it at Slate dot com slash live. You can get tickets there too. That's slate.com slash live. 
It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. My guest today is Andrew Morantz. He's a contributing editor at The New Yorker, and he's written for that magazine since 2011. Welcome, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, I insisted that Jason start this show with a little clip from Life of Brian, where um, <laughs> you may remember that some of the um, rebels against the Romans are talking about factionalism, and some of them are people's front of Judea, and some yeah, of them are... Judean people's front, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right, exactly. Splitters. Um, I try to say we all hate the Romans, um, and that's... <laughs> And then, and we don't need to fight among ourselves. We don't need the alt left to be distinct from Antifa and so on. But I'm not sure that's true. The other thing that you have pointed out in your work is that the Romans, the right wing, are not as uh, are not as coherent as they they might seem either. You've written about factions and, in some t- some cases, fractiousness in the right and the far right and the alt right. Why don't you start by giving us just a taxonomy of what the differences are among far-right groups, and are they on a spectrum? Is one just farther right than another, or do they have different interests and tactics? Uh, I think there are two parts to that question, which I'll I'll address. I mean, I think, first of all, there's a little bit more kind of blanket, we hate the Romans kind of feeling on the right than you might imagine, Mm. as well as on the left. Um, There's a lot, like, so for instance, I started covering this stuff a little over a year ago, um, when it was in the heat of campaign season, right? And uh, it was the general election was ramping up. All eyes were on November 2016. And so there were deep ideological fissures even then within what was still being called the alt-right, what is now called kind of the far right, the new right, the alt-right, which we'll get into those, you know, specific terms. But what they had in common at that time was let's let's make sure that uh, Hillary doesn't get elected president. So Whenever these deep ideological divides or stylistic divides or personal divides would arise, and they certainly did arise because it's the Internet and fragmentation is sort of what the Internet does well, they would sort of suppress them and say, eyes on the prize, let's focus on the common enemy and we'll hash all this stuff out after November. And, you know, that was explicitly stated by multiple people multiple times. And then sure enough, you know, November 8th or November 9th or whatever, these divisions start coming to the fore. You had, you know, people calling each other out for how much they were willing to espouse white nationalism versus uh, what they call civic nationalism. You had people calling each other out for being okay with globalism and, and, and Goldman Sachs bankers versus people who were staunchly still opposed to them. So these divisions start coming to the fore to the point where around inauguration time, before Trump has stepped into office or done anything, these divisions were already so stark that, you know, I went to D.C. to cover uh, an event called the Deplorable which um, was the far right, the pro-Trump right, reclaiming the term deplorable that Hillary had used to try to slander them and sort of claiming it as a, as a positive and saying, yes, we are the deplorables, right? So they hold this event. While everybody was kind of focusing on, wow, you know, these people are so um, theatrical, they're so willing to court controversy, they're so willing to, you know, invite, you know, Milo and Alex Jones and all these people to their party, both of whom did not show up, by the way. While all that was going on, there were these deep divisions, so deep that 
Richard Spencer and Baked Alaska, these kind of big-ticket alt-right figures who would later go on to speak in Charlottesville, were specifically blacklisted from the event and not allowed to attend because of their white nationalist views. So this has been going on for a long, long time, and the fissures have only have only deepened to the point that now the alt-right and what's called either the alt-light or the new right, depending on who's framing the debate, are now, in some senses, like actually avowed political enemies. Got it. Okay. I mean, I don't got it, but I... <laughs> <laughs> well, we can break it down a little bit. I mean, yeah. so, so the alt-right versus the alt-light, again, going back into last year in campaign mode, alt-right was a big, broad umbrella term. And I and others were, were writing about this as a very, very loose coalition of people who, you know, alt just meant alternative. And it was just anyone who was not a mainstream Republican, who was a kind of angry guy on the internet. And, um, and I want to I want to just stay on on angry guy on the internet because yeah. this is you are talking about battle for battle for the internet, you know, in some ways. Yeah, um, yeah this this is yeah. fundamentally an internet story. I mean, I when I started approaching this, it was much more as an internet story than as a political story. The tactics, the language, the 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 whole stylistic and tactical approach is borrowed from from internet message boards and, and trolling and Gamergate and all these things. Um, yep. I yeah, want to, I, 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 we had uh, the now seemingly controversial Mark Bray on the show last week talking about Antifa. And it interests me to hear about how that movement in Europe, at least as he understands it, grows out a little bit of punks trying to keep skinheads out of their music. And so mm-hmm. this is like the era of zines, of a particular poses struck in public space. And, you know, you're pointing out that just even name-checking Gamergate, I think for our audience that comes to, to this podcast from traditional politics, something like Gamergate or the idea that gaming, and we mostly mean massively multiplayer online role-playing games like World of Warcraft, that inspired this explosion online, if you were interested in Gamergate, you might think that they represented a huge important block of voters who, you know, were coming to uh, storm the gates of of feminists and, and women more generally. And, and, and for that to be a touchstone, uh, like a ruby ridge for the current right, is so arcane, um, <laughs> you know, as to, I think, yeah. be bewildering to people who think that the conversation about Trump is about Mitch McConnell. Right. Sure. Well, but Ruby Ridge was arcane in its way. Yep. I mean, a lot of, you know, I think one thing that is just kind of a fundamental alignment thing is politics can be about anything. Politics is about getting votes. Yeah. Right. There, there, there's, there's no rule book that says, you know, the candidate with the most endorsements from mid-party members will win an election. There's no rule that says that the, the person with the most donations will win an election. It's the person who has the most votes. Right. So what I was kind of looking for when I started out investigating this stuff, and I'm certainly not the only one. I mean, this is, this is why, you know, Steve Bannon courted Gamergate people and, and, and recruited Milo to write for Breitbart, is because if you just kind of shift your analysis from looking only within the traditional political sphere to just looking for where the energy is, where the passion is, where the votes are, you can go in any kind of direction. So the reason I think to go to the internet and Gamergate may or may not be the the right Ruby Ridge, maybe you can tell me, but is that because most of the publications that um, amplify the message of of these right-wing groups are native to the internet, it seems worth talking about the memes. And also, 
A, how the memes compete with each other. And that's one question for you. And the second part is, what do they do? They have anything of ideologically coherent to them? I mean, okay. So, so just to to get specific, I think there's a nationalism versus globalism divide, mm-hmm. you know, or national, you know, or or populism versus globalism, or or whatever you want to call it. So, I think broadly, there's there's agreement within the movement that American interests should be championed above global interests. That that generally speaking, you know, trade deals have you know not favored American interests, you know, and this was obviously a, a very, very popular issue with voters in the last election to the point where the two most grassroots popular candidates, Bernie and Trump, both, you know, agreed on that, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Right right away, you get into very tricky, fragmented territory, because when you say nationalist versus globalist, what often people will associate or what the mainstream media certainly will associate with that is white nationalist versus globalist as dog whistle for anti-Semitism, right? So, so there is a good faith way of reading the nationalist versus globalist divide, which is, you know, there are people who want protectionism, who want high tariffs, who want, you know, immigration restrictionism, whatever. And then there's a much darker way of reading that, which is people who, when they say nationalist, they actually mean white nationalist. Now, that is a fault line that is perhaps probably the main fault line along which this, this group divided. So people who were all happy to be associated with each other and, and grouped together during the campaign when they started splitting, they started splitting along that line. So there were the Richard Spencer types, you know, the, the, the Charlottesville types who would embrace a kind of white nationalism. They might embrace it, you know, in different ways. Some of them might be more careful to disavow violence. Others might, you know, espouse violence a little bit more. You know, some people, you know, might use Jewish slurs. Other people might use dog whistles. But broadly speaking, if you ask them what their ultimate goal was, they would basically say this country should be for you know, European Americans, it should be run by people of European ancestry, right? That's a pretty, that's a pretty third rail thing to espouse in 2016 or 2017. And there are a lot of people on the right who broke from the alt-right over that. And, and in fact, it, it got to a point where I, I went back to D.C. to cover these two competing rallies, I think uh, uh, early June, I think it was. You know, they had these two competing rallies that were very much about this. You know, there was a, a a rally on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial that had a slate of speakers that at the last minute, Richard Spencer was added to that slate of speakers. And a bunch of the other speakers on that bill fled from it specifically so that they wouldn't have to stand on a bill that included white nationalists. And they, they, they had their own march a mile away at the White House to essentially mark that division and say, we are no longer one movement. You know, we all agree on some things, but we disagree on this. Um, they, it seems like White nationalism and nationalism don't seem actually on a continuum with one another. For instance, white nationalists seem, at least in the work of Richard Spencer and others, to have a lot or have a a great deal of um, mysterious affection for, say, Russians. Um, And uh, and nationalists, um, you know, want to protect the borders of and levy high tariffs on on companies and and um, and shut out people from other countries, but thus preserving our diverse population of citizens. Um, And there's also another point of discontinuity just at a basic level, which they'll often point out, you know, national socialists are at least nominally socialists. The point is these ideological divisions go very deep and. I think you're right to point out that it's not at all a continuum. And I, 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 for a long time, but especially since Charlottesville, have been a little dismayed to see a lot of, you know, commentary on Twitter and in the media really, really trying to cram these things into one 
flat political continuum mm. and to, to attempt to say, okay, you have this one sliding scale and all the way to the right is, you know, literal neo-Nazis and all the way to the left is, you know, Antifa people who want to punch Nazis and pepper spray them and then everyone else is in the middle of that. I, I just don't think that's useful. I don't think it's correct. I think the debate over whether or not it's okay to punch Nazis is not a left versus left center debate. I think it's a debate about tactics. You know, Noam Chomsky is not into Nazi punching. Does that mean that Noam Chomsky is a centrist? I mean, it just, it, it just breaks <laughs> down as soon as you start thinking about it. And, and the similar thing on the right, as you point out, white nationalist and civic nationalist are not just two points on a sliding political scale. They're, they're, they're deeply divergent ideologies that have some points of commonality and some points of of stark difference. So I understand the impulse, A, because it's simpler to just have one flat spectrum that you can kind of refer back to as like a handy rule of thumb. And B, because we live in these crazy times where we have to delineate things that should have been very clearly delineated long ago, like it's bad to be a Nazi. The fact that we have to say that and the fact that our president seems to have trouble saying that is shocking and disorienting. And I understand why people look at that kind of muddle of false equivalences and go, we need to draw bright lines here. The problem is that people are drawing bright lines hastily, often without evidence, often without paying attention to what their political enemies are actually saying. And so in the rush to avoid false equivalences, they, they just rush themselves into other kinds of falsehoods. I just, I just don't think that's productive. Hmm. I feel like one of the, one of the questions that underlies the current conversation about what are the divisions are in the alt left and the alt right are and and especially which ones of them are violent or armed or at least willing to punch each other is this a fear that i want to surface right now that if indictment impeachment resignation or at least lame duck status for the president that is our far right president stymied by a center right congress if all those things are all but guaranteed i feel like what we're looking ahead to now is how the this base might react with the sort of extreme hypothesis that we're facing at least civil skirmishes like we saw in Charlottesville, um, and at most something much, much worse. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a perfectly good reason to not put these things on a flat spectrum, because if they have to all be fit onto one flat spectrum, then there's kind of purity testing on both sides, mm. that, that then it just leads inexorably to this notion that if you were really part of our team, if you were really down with the cause, you would be willing to be violent in support of it. Now, we can have arguments for or against that, but at bottom, if you're worried about fragmentation, if you're worried about skirmishes in the streets, if you're worried about civil war, you don't want to create ideological incentives that always tend to favor violence. It's just not a good idea. So I think the basic impulse to say something or do something or speak out or show up against views that, that are reprehensible is obviously a good impulse. I just think that, you know, we're all a little bit confused, you know, about what that looks like. I think one that comes to mind is as the images started filtering out of Charlottesville, the men with torches and all the, the swastikas, and I think the images that were really shocking to a lot of people who have not been immersed in, like people who didn't know that, that you could buy a swastika flag in, in America in 2017. I mean, it just seemed really out of left field to a lot of people or right field, um, they, um, I think, wanted to react really strongly and sharply and, again, draw these clear, bright lines. And a way that I saw a lot of people doing that on Twitter and stuff would be to take an image of a Nazi 
and then say, okay, are we done talking about economic anxiety now? Mm. Are we done talking about, you know, the Rust Belt and, and joblessness now? No, of course not. Just because you have clear, compelling evidence that there are racists in the world, that's not a sign that you should stop talking about economic anxiety. The, the literal Nazis in literal Germany yeah. were a product of many things, one of which was economic anxiety. So the, the impulse to say something or do something stark or clear, again, I get, but the impulse to turn away from nuance and complexity and say something can only be one thing, it can't be anything else, I just, I don't see where that, where that gets you. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 there are obviously real world social conditions and then there are the things people say on Twitter and memes and saying, let's not talk about economic insecurity falls itself in a giant context of thinking about Trump's victory and goes with she should have campaigned harder in Wisconsin, which have all been appropriated for use, you know, to like wearing uh, tattoos or safety pins to say you take one side or another in this. That is all separate from the fact of whether or not thinking about the country and Hillary Clinton talked about economic anxiety, and Bernie Sanders did, and uh, all the Republican candidates did. Certainly a subject for inquiry, but how it's used as a meme, I think, is um, is maybe somewhat different. And to return right. to— I think that's yeah. a good point. I mean, I think it's, it's appropriate that even in this conversation, we can't escape the degree to which this is a discussion about the aesthetics and, like, tactics of having conversations on the Internet as opposed to in real life. I mean, the, the phrase economic anxiety— uh, you're right, as a meme is very different from as a, you know, matter of a political science syllabus or something. And so, like, again, we're back to this fundamental notion that the way people talk on social media is a huge factor here in, in, in how these movements develop and how they clash. Um, I, because I can't stop asking you questions, I want to say one, I want to ask one more about the Ruby Ridge or Waco of some of us, especially the young participants in the alt-right. We mentioned Gamergate. And uh, but also Duke Lacrosse. So mm -hmm. these things that I think would not actually I would wonder whether some of the old line conservatives, some of the Bush cabinet um, really even recognizes the word Gamergate. Maybe I'll ask mm -hmm. da David from on Twitter to tell me about Gamergate. So <laughs> I don't think that. So if economic anxiety is or isn't one of the forces in creating the, the sum of the alt-right that you've seen online, the readers of Daily Stormer and so forth, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But certainly the meme of the Duke lacrosse, of Duke lacrosse and Gamergate and maybe some other things were. Can you just briefly explain why the Duke lacrosse scandal and Gamergate struck such a nerve and when they did? Yeah, so I, like you, I'm not an expert on Gamergate. It was essentially a flare-up that happened around video games and the coverage of video games and this, this, this big mob uh, pylon of um, gamers, mostly young men, who went after a few female video game makers and video game journalists and accused them of all kinds of corruption, of having illicit relationships with various people. It, didn't, it, it ultimately wasn't really about that. I think you can see um, the political import of Gamergate in retrospect, without really knowing any of the details. And mm -hmm. I think it just, it just became about, honestly, political correctness and, and free speech and don't tell me what to say. And, you know, we can go back and forth all day about whether political correctness is even a coherent term, whether that's meaningful. I mean, people have been having these discussions since the first round of culture wars. But the underlying point being, 
and this this is true of, of Duke lacrosse even more starkly. So the Duke lacrosse case obviously was this: uh, these a bunch of lacrosse players were accused of um, sexually assaulting a woman who they hired to be a stripper at their party, who which later the charges were dropped and it turned out to not be true. I mean, especially the the the, the Duke case, and my friend Reeves uh, Wideman at New York wrote a great uh, piece about this. That is a case where you have clashing narratives, very sharply clashing narratives. Mm. And the narratives can't really talk intelligibly to one another, right? So you have one side saying, I can't believe that these privileged white assholes raped this poor woman. You have the other side saying, I can't believe that these poor young men are being dragged through the ringer of, of, you know, the court of public opinion for having done nothing wrong. The fact that the latter argument was in some sense vindicated by the fact that the accusations were false that was a, you know, a deeply validating thing to certain segments of, of the movement, not least Stephen Miller, who was going on Bill O'Reilly's show every night and talking about this mm-hmm. uh, from the perspective of an outraged defender of these, of these lacrosse players, because we, we sort of look at, at Trump railing at the media and see all kinds of things. You know, we see a kind of uh, South American-style dictator, you know, railing against his enemies. We see the roots of, you know, alternative facts and, you know, all these million different things. But if you, again, read it with as much good faith as possible, if you have ever been in a position where you really vociferously believe something to be true and everyone in the sort of establishment, you know, polite society um, reviled you for saying that thing, told you you were an idiot and a monster for thinking that thing, and then in the end you were vindicated and never really felt that you got your comeuppance. Mm. Like, you know, imagine imagine being someone who, you know, was on the Duke campus and was sort of taking the position that, well, I know these guys and they're not bad guys. They wouldn't have done this. And then in the end, you're proved right. And everyone admits that you were right all along. But, you know, in your own view, you know, you never get full vindication because you're still a cis white man and you're still, you know, suspect. And every day you read some headline and BuzzFeed telling you what white men did wrong today. Now, I'm not espousing that as a as like a true or false political ideology, but what I'm saying is you can see how that could feel like a sort of unfairness or victimhood. And of course, you know, the response from the left would be Crimea River, like poor white male victim. But that feels real to people. I think it feel, I think you don't have to agree with the grievance in order to understand it and to understand why someone who had a moment where they took a tough position, went short on mainstream opinion, went long on their own, you know, observation or, or values or whatever, were proved right and then still never really vindicated in the court of public opinion. You can see why that would feel like a rotten deal to some people. It is interesting, so, again, like, as, ta- as things move so fast and the media, the Internet keeps coming up with new ways to frame things, how kind of there's a little bit of lag time before the significance of certain memes are parsed. So, yeah, I can see if I try to broaden my um, heart, <laughs> I can see how Stephen Miller might have read, you know, these the Duke lacrosse team as proxies for himself. Um, yeah, and again, I think, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's important to be clear. Like, I, I don't think that the ask here, if, if the ask is, you know, let's understand what drives the farthest reaches of the right wing and, and, and you know, sort of forms their ideology... I don't think that means agreeing with any or all of their positions. I don't think that means even necessarily empathizing with their positions. I think understanding and just sort of factually knowing their positions 
is is a first step. So, I mean, let's imagine that the alt-right is the worst, most vile political force that has ever existed in this country. Let's just stipulate that for the sake of argument. Let's say they're as bad as ISIS, right? The way that we deal with ISIS journalistically, culturally, academically, is to try to understand them without empathizing or excusing, right? We don't read Rukmini Kalamaki's amazing reporting in the New York Times and say, oh, she must be an ISIS sympathizer because she's attempting to understand these people, or she must have some sympathy with their views. I think we read it accurately as her trying to offer a deep, nuanced, accurate picture of their thinking and why they do what they do. So I think I can feel people already cringing at even the notion that we're going to such great lengths to try to understand what's in the head of, you know, some Gamergate apologist, like, who cares? They're they're assholes. Who cares what they think? Right. I, I know that that attitude exists in the world, but I think there's a lot of space between I condemn these people and I think they're assholes and who cares what they think. I think the who cares what they think part is a lot more dangerous than we often realize. I'm really grateful to hear that. And thanks for when it's so tempting to contract our visions and see the other side as a monolith of Romans. It is so it is so um, good to hear uh, the old argument for uh, understanding and an expansive vision of of the would be other side. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's frankly a pretty classic liberal argument, but, you know. Yeah, but as you say, we we're trying. We have to make square one arguments these days. Nazis bad, maybe a little bit of liberal understanding, good. Yeah. <laughs> thank yeah. you very very much for being here, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. That's it for our show today. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. But before we go, I am never, ever going to shame you guys again about following Real Trumpcast on Twitter. It, it, we love our followers. Everyone who follows it is the right people to follow it. I am, however, going to shame you a little bit about not reviewing our show. If you like it, please go to iTunes and give it five stars. It really makes a difference. And thank you for listening to Trumpcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.